For his own glory, God accomplishes his eternal plan to redeem a people through his eternal son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the theme of the Old Testament. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in South Lake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and Tom is continuing his current series titled An Aerial View of the Old Testament. How do you view the Old Testament? Is it one unified message or a disconnected set of historical events? What connects it to the New Testament, if anything at all? Well, after providing a sweeping overview of the Old Testament history and message, Tom is going to begin to examine why the Old Testament exists. Today, he'll look at four views on the purpose of the Old Testament and how a proper understanding of the message of the Bible is a Christ-centered message. God is redeeming a people by His Son, for His Son, to His own glory. Let's join our teacher right now on The Word Unleashed. I've divided the Old Testament into nine major movements or scenes, beginning in the first 11 chapters of Genesis with universal dealings, the patriarchal period from Genesis 12 to 50, slavery in Egypt, Exodus 1, the Exodus under Moses from Exodus 2 through the rest of the Pentateuch. And then in Joshua, we discover the conquest and division of the land and we ushered into the period of the judges, that dark time when there was no king in Israel, so every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That dark period was followed by the highest period, the monarchy, especially the united monarchy, when there were three kings, beginning with Saul and then David and his son Solomon. From that time, the kingdom was divided. There was a king in the north, a king in the south, and eventually came the destruction of the north, and the Babylonian exile for the southern kingdom of Judah. And that was followed then by the restoration period where we looked last time. And the events of the restoration period are recorded in Ezra and Esther and Nehemiah. That's the summary of the history of the Old Testament. But I want us to go beyond the history, which we've examined in, in uh, sort of uh, preliminary and cursory way. And I want to ask, why does the Old Testament exist? What message did it communicate to its original readers? What was the mind of God in terms of the Old Testament? And what message does it communicate to us today? The poet George Herbert wrote, Oh, that I knew how all thy lights combine and the configuration of thy glory, seeing not only how each verse doth shine, but all the constellations of the story. I want us to look at how all the lights of Old Testament history combine into one great constellation, a great unifying message of the Old Testament. I suppose we should begin by asking, can there even be such a unifying message? There are many today who reject the notion that there is a God-intended unifying message to the Bible and to the Old Testament. 
I've told you before that the prevailing philosophy of postmodernism is sweeping across the college campuses and our young people today, and at its heart, postmodernism rejects what it calls meta-narratives, that is, unifying theories of universal me- meaning, a single universal worldview. And when that philosophy comes into the church, the, those who hold it believe that when you look at the Bible, when you look at the Old Testament, There are no overarching lessons or points. There's no structure that we can grasp that unifies and unites history. For so-called Christian postmodernists, their response is just to appreciate and enjoy the biblical narratives as distinct signposts, each pointing in a vague and uncertain way to some nebulous spiritual issue. The problem with their view, as we'll see before the night's done, that the Bible itself presents a unified theme. So if there is one, what exactly is its unifying theme? Well, first, you need to examine what your overall view of the Old Testament is. Sidney Gradanus, in his book on the Old Testament, says that there are essentially four views. There is the view that the Old Testament is sub-Christian. This is primarily held by liberals who reject the supernatural who look at the God of the Old Testament and see him as somehow different from the God of the New Testament. They reject a God of anger and wrath, the God of Israel who had people destroyed, and they just sweep it away and say the Old Testament is sub-Christian. A second view says that the Old Testament is non-Christian. I have a quote here by Leonard Thompson who says, the Hebrew Scriptures are a complete work and do not need the New Testament to complete them. In other words, they stand alone. They don't have any reference, really, to the Christian faith at all. They're not sub-Christian. They're non-Christian. The third view is that the Old Testament is pre-Christian. This view, I think, is best presented by John Bright, who says the Old Testament is not of and by itself a Christian message. The Old Testament stands in discontinuity with the New because it speaks a B.C. word, not an A.D. word. To those who hold this view, the Old Testament is primarily a book directed only to Israel. Some old-line classic dispensationalists took a view very similar, if not identical, to this. A fourth view, and the view that I personally espouse, and I hope before the night is done you will embrace as well, is that the Old Testament is Christian. The Old Testament is Christian. Sidney Gradanus writes, the dilemma of how to get a Christian message out of a non-Christian or a pre-Christian book is a predicament of our own making. The Old Testament and the New are both parts of the Christian Bible. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Let me show you Paul's very interesting comment here as he contrasts the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, with the new covenant. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14. Speaking of Israel, the sons of Israel, verse 13, he says, their minds, verse 14, were darkened. For until this very day, at the reading of the old covenant, he's talking about the, the law, the portion of the Old Testament, the same veil remains unlifted. They don't get it. Why? Because it is removed when you're in Christ. 
But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. You know what Paul is saying? He is saying that a Christian, one who has come to repent of their sins, to embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, is better equipped to understand the true meaning and significance of the Old Testament than he was before or than one who has not come to that position. It is a Christian book. There are a number of authors who make this point that the Old Testament is Christian is a Christian book. Gleason Archer writes, the Old Testament presented the preparation of which the New Testament was the fulfillment. It was the seed of which the achievement of Christ and the apostles was the glorious fruit. Harrison, in his introduction to the Old Testament, writes, it was the common belief of the fathers, and he's just mentioned Origen, Jerome, Chrysostom, and Augustine, that the Old Testament was in principle a Christian book. So church history supports this position. And I'll share some more quotes in just a moment. But the New Testament writers' use of the Old Testament also supports the view that the Old Testament is, at its heart, a Christian book. There are only four New Testament books that have no reference to the Old Testament. Philemon, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. There are, in Matthew, 135 references to the Old Testament. In Luke, 140. In Acts, 169. In Romans, 103. In Hebrews, 115. In Revelation, 574 references to the Old Testament. The New Testament refers to Isaiah's writings 308 times. The New Testament refers to Psalms 303 times. You see how there is this cross-pollinization that occurs, they did not see it as a book that had no relevance for the Christian communities to which they wrote. So, when you see it as a Christian book, it changes your perspective on what its themes might be or what its major theme might be. The most commonly suggested Old Testament themes by those who embrace it as relevant to Christians They would list these. These are some familiar ones. Maybe you've read these in various books. You've come across these. God, they would say, just God generally. God and his person is the theme of the Old Testament. Others would say, no, it's God's glory. Others would say it's the rule and sovereignty of God. It's the kingdom of God. It's the promised blessing of God. It's Christ or it's redemption. That last one is probably the most common that's suggested We do have a bit of a problem, though. How do we determine the theme of the Old Testament? Well, I would suggest to you that the right method to determine the Old Testament's unifying theme is to determine, or to examine, I should say, the New Testament's inspired commentary on the Old Testament. Who better able to tell us what the Old Testament is about than inspired New Testament authors and how they use it? All of those themes I just gave you are certainly important. They're in there, God and his glory and his kingdom and his rule. And all of those things are part of the Old Testament. But when it comes to a central unifying theme, who better to tell us than the inspired authors of the New Testament? So with that in mind, turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Here, I'm not so much looking to prove to you that this is what the Old Testament taught, as I want to lay a framework, a ground, 
a foundation for where we'll go for the rest of our study. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 11, we read this. What God did, and we'll look at what he did in a moment, was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus. The eternal purpose. You see that expression? God's eternal purpose. The Greek word for purpose there means plan or resolve. Notice in English as in Greek, it is singular. God has one plan, one unified plan, one purpose. Literally translated, this expression is the purpose of the ages. While there may be different parts of the plan, the plan or purpose is wholly unified. The purpose of the ages. As Robert Raymond writes, there was never a moment when God had a blank mind or a time when God's plan with all its parts was not fully determined in his mind. Now notice that Paul says here in Ephesians 3 verse 11 that God accomplished that one unified plan in Jesus Christ, which he, that is God the Father, carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the person of Jesus is at the galactic center of God's eternal plan. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 9 the kind intention which God purposed in Christ to sum up all things in Christ. That is the center of God's plan. But not just Christ in his person, but especially Christ in his work. His work of redeeming lost humanity. Look back at verses 8 through 10 now of Ephesians 3. Paul says, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. God's wisdom made known through the church. Remember in chapter 1 we learned the church is a body of redeemed people. And Bringing those people together in the church and redeeming them, verse 11, was in accordance with, was in step with the eternal unified plan which God had connected to Jesus Christ. So listen carefully. What I want you to get from Ephesians 3 is that the focus of God's eternal plan centered in Christ is the redemption of a fallen humanity for himself. So the eternal plan of God is at its heart redemptive. And it is that eternal plan of God to redeem sinners in Christ that is the unifying theme of the Old Testament. Gleason Archer puts it like this, the Christian church regards the Old Testament as authoritative Holy Scripture because its founder and Savior so regarded it. His apostles understood the entire Hebrew Scripture to constitute a composite unity authored by God and setting forth, here it is, the divine will and plan for man's salvation. The New Testament showed that the Hebrew Scriptures constituted an organic unity focused upon a single great theme and setting forth a single but all-comprehensive program of what? Redemption. It's about God rescuing sinners in Christ. That's what the Bible's about. That's what the Old Testament is about. Merrill Unger writes, speaking of the Old Testament, its central unifying theme is the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. 
In his guide to the Bible, he puts it like this. The theme of Scripture is human redemption. The principal character is the world's redeemer, Jesus Christ, God incarnate. Everything in the Old Testament that precedes his incarnation points to this grand event and its outworking in human redemption. But I like John MacArthur's explanation the best. In his study Bible, he puts it like this. To understand the Bible, it is essential to grasp the sweep of that history from creation to consummation. It's crucial to keep in focus the unifying theme of Scripture. Here it is. The one constant theme unfolding throughout the whole Bible is this. God, for his own glory, has chosen to create and to gather to himself a group of people to be the subjects of his eternal kingdom, to praise, honor, and serve him forever, and through whom he will display his wisdom, power, mercy, grace, and glory. To gather his chosen ones, God must first redeem them from sin. The Bible reveals God's plan for this redemption from its inception in eternity past to its completion in eternity future. All of the rest of the things you read, covenants, promises, and epics, are all secondary to the one continuous plan of redemption. There is one God. The Bible has one creator. It is one book. It has one plan of grace recorded from initiation through execution to consummation. From predestination to glorification, the Bible is the story of God redeeming his chosen people for the praise of his glory. Can't be said any better than that. Now let me pull that together in a briefer statement for us. It's not better, but it's briefer, and hopefully it'll be something you can put your arms around. This is my own summary of the Old Testament's theme, and I'm gonna take it apart and prove it to you in just a moment, so stick with me. For his own glory, God accomplishes his eternal plan to redeem a people through his eternal son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the theme of the Old Testament. Now, for many of you, that comes as a shock because you don't think of Christ being that involved in the Old Testament or being that much a part of its pages. I think by the time we're done tonight, you'll disagree with yourself and have come to embrace this. For our study, I want to divide that one theme into its three basic parts. That theme I just gave you can be broken down into the person of Christ, the work of Christ, and then the instruction of those who have been redeemed and need to grow now in likeness to God. So let's look first at the person of Christ. He is absolutely permeating Old Testament prophecy. Now most people would agree with this. When you go back to the very beginning of the Old Testament, the first glimpse you get of Christ is at the fall. Right after Adam and Eve sin, we learn that the one who will ultimately deal with sin will be a human being. Genesis 3.15 says that the seed of the woman will bruise Satan's head. Immediately there was the understanding by Adam and Eve that there would be a human person, the seed of the woman, but an unusual person because you wouldn't ordinarily refer to the seed of the woman. So there were glimpses even in that of what we've learned later, the virgin birth. But at this point, simply the idea that a human person, an unusual human person, would be the one that would deal finally and ultimately with human sin. When you get to Genesis chapter 12, picture as we go through the Old Testament, 
the funnel of who this redeemer is starts very large and as the Old Testament goes through it narrows and narrows and narrows until the only person on which it could fall is Jesus of Nazareth. It begins broad, a human being. But when you get to Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3 in the Abrahamic covenant, there we learn that the seed who will bring blessing upon all the nations will come through the descendants of one man, Abraham, and that and the nation that comes from him. So we learn that, it, that this seed, this redeemer, will come through Abraham and the nation that comes from him. Then as we get to Genesis 49, as Jacob is blessing his sons on his deathbed, he comes to Judah, and he says to Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Shiloh literally means the one whose right it is. The ruler's staff will not depart from Judah until the one to whom it belongs, the one to whom authority truly belongs, comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So we learn that it will be one son of Jacob, one son, the tribe of Judah. When we go on through the Old Testament, Let's go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. There is the Davidic covenant. And in the Davidic covenant, we learn it narrows even more. Not just Judah, but one family in Judah, the family of David. He tells David, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. It's through you I'm going to send this one who will deal with sin and who will reign forever. You come to Isaiah, we learn that this one will be born of a virgin and will be both human and divine at the same time. As we saw in, in Isaiah 7:14, the Lord will give you a sign, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son. So he's going to be human, but his name will be called God among us. Emmanuel, Emmanuel, the Hebrew word, God among us. And according to Isaiah's prophecy later in his book, Isaiah 53, he will accomplish this redemption that's been promised, this permanent dealing with sin, by the sacrifice of himself, by God crushing him, by his bearing the penalty for our sin. And by the time you get to the end of the Old Testament, we find out that not only will he come Will he be human? Not only will he come through Abraham, not only will he come through Judah, not only will he come through the family of David, but he'll even, we even learn where he'll be born. He'll be born in Bethlehem. By the time you're done, there is no one else but Jesus Christ. By the way, I didn't include several other things. Daniel gives us the timing of his birth. There's so much that the Old Testament does to narrow down the window so that it can't be anyone but Jesus Christ. So the prophecy definitely in the Old Testament is permeated with Jesus Christ, but it's also accurate to say that Jesus permeates Old Testament history. You see, what was unique about Bethlehem was that he became one of us. He became flesh, fully God, taking on full humanity, but he had been here before. He had been here many times before in what theologians call Christophanies, that is, pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus Christ. He is a primary character, Jesus is, in Old Testament history. 
You ever thought about that? He is a primary character in Old Testament history. You say, how? Well, we first meet him in the very first verse of the Old Testament. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And yet, when we come to the New Testament, we're told that in John 1, 3, that all things that came into being came into being by the Word that was made flesh. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. Colossians 1 says, for by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by Him and for Him. Hebrews 1, 2, God has spoken to us by His Son, through whom He made the world. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part 11 of his current series, An Aerial View of the Old Testament. Tom will conclude this series with part 12 for you on our next program, and we do hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.